Along with Drew, I want to extend my welcome to you. I'm Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to tell you a story. A couple of months after Spencer, our oldest child, was born, Janelle and I moved to England. I was a grad student, and throughout the year, I would travel out of the country, typically back here to America, to preach and to teach the Bible at conferences and at churches and so forth. So, um, right after Janelle and I had a child, we moved there when Spencer, I think, was two months old, um, maybe a month old. What was it, Janelle? Yeah, a year old. Okay, <laughs> a year old. My memory's kind of fuzzy. So we moved there, and I would, I would leave, and I would <laughs> go on these trips. And um, on one of these trips, right before leaving, Spencer had began to teeth. Did she teeth at one year old? That was in Kentucky. Okay. So scratch all that. It's all fuzzy. So we lived in Kentucky, and I traveled then some too. Uh, it all... It's really hard when you're opening illustration craters. CJ, how do I salvage this? Okay. So somehow Spencer's teething and I go on some trip and while I'm on the trip, she's fussy, she's teething, I'm talking to Janelle and at some point while I'm on this trip, um, Janelle says her teeth came in and I'm so excited, I can't wait to get home and see them. And while so many of the details are obviously fuzzy, there's one part that, I, that is distinct, whether it's true or not, I don't know anymore. <laughs> I'm feeling so insecure about my memories now, but I come home and I'm so excited to see the new chompers. And um, I don't know why this happened, but it's for some reason in my mind there were going to be these two pearly white ivories, about a half inch tall or so. And when I see Spencer, I have to get a magnifying glass to find these two specks of white. And for just a moment, I thought, what the heck? Those aren't teeth. And suddenly I realized that what I was imagining was absolutely ridiculous. Teeth aren't going to just pop up. Like some little bunny rabbit, you know? And so, but for some reason, I, I don't know where it came from. You know, by this time, I'm 30 years old. Um, I've lived a lot of life. But apparently, I'd paid no attention to basic childhood development. My expectations were of these fully formed teeth. They were off base. Sort of like some of you. This morning, perhaps you showed up here and you had no idea that you were going to be um, herded outside to listen to this long passage, expected to wave this palm branch, and then to walk in here. There are these moments in life, whether it's silly stuff like me thinking teeth just boing popped up, or you showing up at what you thought was going to be one thing, but it ends up different. There are these moments in life that we go through where our expectations, we kind of are shaken to realize they've, they, they're off base. They've been set the wrong way. 
If you can have that understanding in your mind, if you can think about that, expecting one thing, but getting something else, then you've got the right framework to understand what's happening in John chapter 12 on this day that we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. 2,000 years ago, on a day like today, we know for sure that it was on a Sunday. We know for sure that it was in the spring. This peasant who had been raised in the tiny rural hamlet of Nazareth, this Jewish peasant walks two miles. He walks from the village of Bethany two miles to the capital city of Jerusalem. And on this day, as he's walking, there's a large crowd from Bethany walking with him. And the closer they get, Jesus and this mass of people, the closer they get to Jerusalem, the more excited they got. And shortly before arriving to the city gates, a massive crowd from Jerusalem come out from the capital city and meet them and join with them. And they had cut down these palm branches. And they began to wave them and they started singing. This was the moment they had all been waiting for. All the old songs came flooding back. And they were chanting and cheering and laughing because the best story in the history of Israel was coming true. Their dreams were coming true. Their, their deep dream of freedom and liberation. You see, Israel was a nation sort of like ours. The founding narrative of Israel was sort of like our 4th of July narrative. Israel was born through a climactic act of liberation. Just like Israel, just like America, our, our founding story is a revolution that threw off a tyrant and produced national freedom, liberation. These were Jews. The Jewish people lived with the long memory of God's favor. God's favor to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And ultimately, God's favor to them as a nation when he delivered them from captivity to Egypt. By the powerful acts of God through Moses, their original great deliverer, God had rescued Israel from slavery to the nation of Egypt. And he did this through a series of ten dramatic signs, actions, awe-inspiring, devastating plagues that God effected on Egypt through Moses. Moses is to Israel like George Washington is to America. The, the exodus, the deliverance from Egypt is for Israel like the Revolutionary War 
was for America. And the climactic moment of all that, when Israel leaves Egypt, goes in a miraculous way, crosses the Red Sea, that was for Israel like the 4th of July was for America. Now, it's called the Exodus. There's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to telling this story. 1,500 years after the story occurred, Israel is once again in captivity. So you can imagine if America was invaded and we were held captive by some powerful world empire, you can imagine that we would be remembering the moment before when we as a nation were delivered from a powerful world empire through a great military leader. That's exactly what's going on in the nation of Israel's life at the moment when Jesus starts walking toward Jerusalem. Rome had conquered most of the Middle East, including Israel. And Israel has begun to mine their history. They've begun to resurrect memories of liberation and they're longing for such an act to occur again. And their deep trust are in these promises that God had made hundreds of years before that he would do this once again. He would deliver them from their captors through a Moses-like figure who would be a mighty, liberating king. This is why the crowds are freaking out. This is what they were waving their palm branches about. What they were doing was they were saying, Jesus is that long-awaited, liberating king that God's been promising us that we've been waiting for, and he's going to deliver us from our modern version of Egypt. He's going to deliver us from Rome. And they had a title for this figure they had been waiting for. Their title for this figure was Messiah. It's a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. In other words, the figure God anoints to deliver Israel from her captors. Now, in Greek, Messiah was translated Christos, which we get our word Christ. So originally, Jesus Christ wasn't a first and last name. It was a title. Like King Jesus, it was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for to deliver us from our captors. Okay. So, this thing we just did, this reenactment in a very small, dramatic, but symbolic way of of that original Palm Sunday, These crowds of pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem celebrating Passover. Passover is their 4th of July. It is the day where they celebrate God delivering them from Egypt. And so Jesus picks that day. The day where they're remembering their original deliverance. And that's when he starts walking into Jerusalem. So he's walking into Jerusalem among crowds that are hyped up on revolutionary memories 
in the midst of revolutionary expectation. They're giddy with it. And Jesus has been acting for many months now, and actually several years now, he's been acting in the way that causes all of these people to associate the promised Messiah with himself. So they believe that's who he was, that he was there to, liber- to liberate them from their enemies. He embraced that. They said, you're the Messiah. And he said, yes. He embraced it by getting on that donkey. Because that donkey was, riding that donkey was a direct fulfillment of one of their ancient promises that said the delivering king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So when Jesus picks the donkey, he's saying, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah. I'm the one. But here's where things get weird. Their expectations were miscalibrated. Their expectation was right, he is the Messiah, but in other ways, like me with Spencer's teeth, like some of you showing up this morning, in other ways, their expectations were not quite right. Look at John chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, if you have a Bible. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. Yes, I am exactly who you think. I am the Messiah. However, in two ways, they were off base. Number one, the way he liberates them was totally different than what they were expecting. And number two, the enemy from whom he was going to liberate them was different than they had expected. And what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is show you how their expectations were off. First of all, Israel was confused about their enemy. You see, the dominant perspective in Israel at the time was that the problem Israel was facing was Rome. Rome was the enemy. Rome was a new version of Egypt. Rome held them captive. They look in their scriptures. They see that God is going to deliver them from their enemy. They see their enemy as Rome. So when they see Jesus as the deliverer, they think Jesus is about to do what? Lead a military conquest of Rome. Oust the captor. But look at John chapter 12 verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And he's not talking about Caesar. They think he's talking about Caesar. They think their greatest enemy is them. And they think that the ruler of the world is Caesar. But the Gospels are telling a different story. Jesus is saying something else. The Gospels tell the story of deep, dark forces at work behind Rome. The enemy behind the enemy. The the Gospels portray evil as this nebulous, but nevertheless, real darkness that exist in the world today, and that this thing is the real enemy we face. That behind your enemies, 
Whether your enemy is cancer or death or your own anger or a cruel stepfather or a boss or a corporation or the United States, that the enemy behind the enemy is the real enemy. And that this enemy is the source of all the death and enslavements and, in, and destructions that we face in our lives. And this enemy is more than a nebulous force. Jesus calls it the ruler. It's sort of like a person. It's supra-personal. It's supra-human. It's a thing that takes over humans and in some cases entire societies. Now, the modern world has made enormous progress on so many fronts that have opened new and previously unimagined levels of human flourishing. There are so many good things about the modern world. Who wants to live pre-modern? Who wants to die from a tooth infection? Who wants to experience life without clients? The horror, the horror. But there are, there are cracks in the modern world. The growing disparity between the haves and have-nots. Dwarfing anything in a medieval society. The devastation of our ecological systems in the name of progress and success. The devastation of entire cultures by global capitalism. These are well-documented fissures in the modern world. And another fissure in the modern world is our inability to account for evil. We kicked out the devil with Dante. We kicked out Satan and demon possession with tetanus shots and penicillin in the scientific revolution. And now we struggle. We struggle to account for evil because we know intuitively that it is larger and more sinister than simply a lack of education and a lack of access to technology and a lack of capital. That some of the most evil works have been perpetrated by some of the most educated, technologically advanced. Who is inventing chemical warfare? Uneducated? Poor? Non-technological people? No. But many of the most serious analysts of the last century have been forced to use the language of evil as a way of getting at what's happening in our world today. A striking example is Dr. Faustus, the great harrowing novel by Thomas Mann, trying to account for what happened to Germany. Or our own M. Scott Peck, the, the psychiatrist with his striking book, People of the Lie. 
Jesus' triumphal procession into, into Jerusalem was indeed God's long-awaited liberator. But what he came to liberate Israel from and the entire world from was far bigger than empire gone astray. Than some 2,000-year-old version of colonialism. God sent Jesus to defeat this force of evil, this source behind wicked nations, and that was nowhere on Israel's radar. Their vision of the problem was too small. They had de-supernaturalized the problem. After all, John 11, verse 53 so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. The leaders of Israel made a plan to kill Jesus because he was a threat to their vested interests. Now, look, whatever you think about Jesus, many people who don't buy into Jesus as divine still think of him as an extraordinary moral figure. And the leaders of Israel plotted his death. And then, and then look over at John chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. These same leaders that were going to kill, let's just call him for the sake of kind of a modernist argument, they're Israel's version of Gandhi. South Africa's version of Desmond Tutu. America's version of of George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr., whatever moment in history you want to drill down into, what, what could cause people to kill somebody like this? And then, not only are they going to kill him, but they're going to kill a guy who just died and was raised from the dead because that's causing too many people to believe in Jesus. So the Gospel of John is telling the story of Jesus in such a way as to show that the dark evil forces at work in the empire of Rome were also at work in the slaves of Israel. You see, Jesus embraces his role as the Messiah of Israel, the one chosen by God to liberate Israel from her enemy, but the enemy is not what Israel had expected. What we're seeing here is that the line between good and evil isn't the line between us and them. It's a line that runs right through the heart of not only slave makers, but slaves themselves. How do you account for evil? Have you succumbed to the modern description of evil as simply a lack of choice, a lack of freedom, a lack of in access to technology? Is your whole life geared up to solving problem A? That the problem of the world is a lack of money, a lack of education, a lack of progress, a lack of democracy, a lack of choice? Because I think that the same surprise holds for many of us today. Do you really think that those things, a lack of education, can account for the dark deeds of the 20th century and now the 21st century? 
Have you, like Israel, failed to peer behind the curtain? To come to grips with the fact that the modern narrative of progress cannot account for the problems of the world? Now, remember I pointed out that Israel's expectation was off in two ways. First, their understanding of the enemy was insufficient. And second, their expectation of how God would deliver them from the enemy was off kilter. So looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus into into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday shows us not only an unexpected enemy, but an unexpected path to deliverance. All through chapter 12, Jesus embraces the role of deliverer, but keeps bringing up his death as the way deliverance will occur. Look at verse 23. Jesus, that's chapter 11, sorry, switch pages. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, look, my death is going to bring life. It's going to look like a tragedy. But in fact, it will be a triumph. The triumph of God's self-giving love. The love that looks death itself in the face and beats it, not with a sword, but by voluntarily dying on behalf of Israel, and not just Israel, the world. Drop down to verse 31. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When he says I'm lifted up from the earth, he's not speaking metaphorically of when I'm like people, um, like I get promoted and everybody sees me. He's speaking literally of being lifted up Nailed to a cross, the cross lifted up from the earth. God is going to liberate the world from the dark forces of evil through the crucifixion of Jesus. That sounds ridiculous. What does the crucifixion of Jesus have to do with deliverance from evil? I mean, it makes no sense. For our mental models. You see, if our mental models are that the problem is some desupernaturalized version, lack of education, lack of technology, lack of capital, lack of choice, if if that's our view of the problem, and if the supernatural reality of evil and darkness doesn't really exist, if, if the cause of evil in this world is just selfish choices of individuals, then how in the world does that make any sense? And in a similar way that it doesn't make sense to us, it made no sense to the Jews. Their view of reality 
didn't head toward that point. And it made no sense to Greeks. They saw it as absurd. Is it absurd according to your view of reality? According to the trajectory of your life? According to the way you organize your labor for a more verdant society? It is absurd to the modern view. Just like it was absurd to the Jewish and Greek view. But it is nevertheless true. The glory of God is the outpouring love in obedience to death. The glory of God is the action of the Son obeying the Father to death. The glory of God is the action of the Father who gives His Son for the life of the world. And I submit to you that as crazy as that sounds to you, could it be that your picture of reality is the problem? Could it be that your framework that makes that sound absurd is the problem? Could it be that modern Americans are just as enslaved to a flawed framework as some tribal culture that thinks killing their children will appease dark forces? Could it be that enlightenment is just another form of darkness? What I'm saying is that that's the case. What I'm saying is that Christianity holds up not just a judgment on sin, but on every framework that can't see Jesus for who he really is. This is the glory of the one and only true God. And if we stop and think about it, there is so much of this glory in our world today. This insight that new life comes through dying. If that is ultimate reality by the creator, then you would expect that that, that there's some shadow of that inscribed into nature itself. And when we look up, it is. It's in the midst of so many nations with their dying and rising gods. It's in the midst of so many cultures that somehow, in some way, death leads to life. It's in Nature itself, in the life cycle of dying crops, forming the rich soil out of which new crops grow. Now, why are all of these death-to-life things within nature? Because the Creator put them there to point. And all of these signs are pointing in a different direction than the story of the Enlightenment. The story of the Enlightenment is progress leads us, or in its Hegelian sense that there's, there's this some sort of movement and then it breaks down and then some synthesis. It, it makes a giant step forward. And that's what our culture is bought into. That's why our nation puts millions and millions of dollars into universities. That the solution is the progress through education. And yet... Even when you look at nature, the sign is fuzzy because in nature, the life cycle is endless. And yet, this endless rotating will of nature, of death and living and death and living, it doesn't quite get us there. The good news is that in Jesus, there is a unique and decisive inbreaking 
into the cycle. The one true God through whom all things were made breaks into the cycle of life and death. He is the source of light and life. And this one true God took on flesh and surrendered his life, not out of necessity, but by freely giving it in loving obedience to the Father. And in that act, the flaming heart of the universe is revealed. The flaming heart of the universe isn't naturalism. It isn't an endless cycle of death and life. It is self-giving, sacrificial love. It's not meaninglessness. It's not loss of significance. And through this act of Jesus on the cross, the greatest enemy of all, death itself did its worst and was defeated. And now through that, God offers us freedom from death and evil. This is the story the Bible tells. This is the good news that God offers the world through Christianity. I'll conclude with one last thing. Looking at the original Palm Sunday, we see that Israel's enemy was not what they were focusing on. It was the enemy behind the enemy. And we need to stop and consider the same reality for our lives today. Secondly, Israel's expected path to freedom was not the path to freedom. The unexpected path to freedom was through God taking on flesh and dying and rising again. And, it, and that's unexpected to many of us and our friends today. But there's a third surprise. The third surprise is how in the world can you and I gain access to that liberation? And it is utterly different from what our modern framework prepares us for. How do we gain access to liberation from evil and death? What is this surprising path? Three quick things in John chapter 12, verse 26, verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone loves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. And where is Jesus going? To the cross. If you want to gain access to liberation, if you want to be free from the dark forces of evil, you too must die to yourself. If there was ever anything I've said that is difficult for modern Americans to believe, it would be that. Because the self is the last sacred in America. Be true to yourself trumps everything. And here we see that the most sacred thing in Miley Cyrus's life, the most sacred thing, in the most powerful victim narrative's life, must 
die. This, this is an irony that's hard for our frameworks. You see, because our frameworks are true in an important way. They're true in the fact that yourself is sacred. That you are valuable. But the only way to find true freedom for yourself is through death to yourself. You have to love Jesus more than you love yourself if you want to receive the gift of yourself. That's what he says. The seed has to die to become the oak tree. Not to become something other than itself, but to become its fullest self. Some of you who are struggling with Christianity, this is right where you're struggling. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time. This struggle is still a part of your life. Are you going to say, like the son said to the father, your way, not my way? Second, to get on to the path of liberation. Not only do we have to be willing to make ourselves second to Jesus in order to become the true self. But second, look at verse 44. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. This is another thing that's hard. You have to be willing to believe that the only true vision of God is Jesus Christ crucified. This is one of the most audacious claims in the Bible for a pluralistic society, that there is only one revelation of God, only Jesus. And if you don't believe that, you will be enslaved to evil. This is tough. This is just as tough as dying to self, right? I mean, how, now we've struck at another core value of Western society. That there is only one revelation of God, Jesus Christ. And that if you would turn your belief system to focus on him, then you will tap into the, the source of light and life in the cosmos today. Number three, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. If you want liberation from your own inner demons, if you want to be a part of working for a free, dignified, flourishing world, you have to be willing to make yourself second and Christ first. You have to believe that Jesus is the truest revelation of God. And third, you have to obey him. You have to keep not just your pet sayings he had. But even the ones that your modern framework reject, like what he said about sexuality. 
Like what he says about making others more important than yourself. About so many things, you have to, you have to accept his words and obey them. If you can make these ticks, which are typically all summed up under the word belief, if you can believe in Jesus in these ways, the way that you lean all of the trust of your life on him, then you will be saved. And you will be a part of God's saving work in the world today. And I'm saying that that is just as hard for us to believe as it was for Israel. But it is true. Let's pray.